I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 2 is an exciting chapter of Scripture because it describes for us the birthday of the church. The Feast of Pentecost, the Spirit came upon 120 people who were gathered in the upper room. There was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. There were tongues like fire that rested on each of them. And they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and spoke in at least 16 different languages that they had never learned. And as you might guess, this had quite an impact on the crowd that was gathered in the city of Jerusalem. Verse 6 says they were bewildered. Verse 7 says they were amazed and marveled. Verse 12 says they continued in amazement and great perplexity. They expected to be offering their first fruits and their sacrifices to the Lord. They expected to be going through the same old routine that always happened on the day of Pentecost. And instead, they ran into this strange phenomenon. And as they were amazed and confused, verse 12 says, they asked the question, what does this mean? What's this sound like a wind? What are these tongues like fire? What is this speaking in other language? What does this mean? There's got to be an explanation. And some of them stepped forward to give their own explanation in verse 13. They said they are full of sweet wine. They wrote them off saying, they're drunk. They've celebrated too much. And as they are mocking, Peter steps forward to clear up the confusion in verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judah and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Peter taking his stand. Peter didn't take a stand in the garden when Jesus was arrested. He fled. He didn't take a stand in the courtyard before the little girl. He denied that he knew Jesus. But now, 50 days later, he takes his stand. Why? because the Holy Spirit has come. And Jesus promised in chapter 1 and verse 8 that when the Holy Spirit came, they would receive power to be witnesses beginning where? In Jerusalem. So Peter takes his stand, but he's not standing alone. We're told here that he's also standing with the other 11 apostles that would include Matthias. They have taken the leadership role. They have stepped forward. Peter is the spokesman. And we're told here that he raised his voice and declared to them. Peter is addressing thousands of people. He doesn't have the modern technology of a wireless mic. And so he steps forward and he projects. He wants as many as possible to hear him. And notice how he addresses the people. Men of Judah, that would be those native Jews born in Israel, And all you who live in Jerusalem, that would be those mentioned back in verse 5, from every nation under heaven. And I like the way in this first sermon, the way Peter addresses the people. He says in verse 14, men of Judah and all who live in Jerusalem. In verse 22, he calls them men of Israel. And in verse 29, he calls them brethren. The longer he talks, the closer he gets to them. And then at the end of verse 14, he says with confidence, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. 
listen to me because I'm going to make something known to you. And Peter speaks with authority. Throughout this sermon, you're not going to find phrases like, it seems likely, in all possibility, I suppose. There's no timidity, no uncertainty, no apologies in declaring the truth of God. And so having gotten their attention, Peter begins by contradicting the conclusion some have reached. Notice verse 15. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. The Jews measured their day beginning at sunrise, about 6 a.m., so the third hour of the day would be about 9 a.m. And those who get involved in drunkenness typically get drunk at night. In fact, the Bible tells us that in 1 Thessalonians 5, 7. It says those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And even those who are given to drinking in the daytime usually wait till about 11 a.m. So Peter says, these men are not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. So what's going on? Well, Peter says in verse 16, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. This is not men doing something, i.e. getting drunk. This is God doing something. And 800 years ago, he said what he was going to do. And what is it that he's doing? Well, Peter goes on to quote from Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. He says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind. We usually think of the last days as the last days right before Jesus' second coming. Because from our perspective, those are the last days. But Scripture uses that phrase, the last days, in a more general way. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. The last days began when Jesus started, or when God started speaking through His Son. The last days began when the Word became flesh. And so the last days are really between the two comings of the Lord Jesus. And so Acts chapter 2 is the last days. And what does God say He's going to do in the last days? He says, I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind. And that's what just happened in Acts chapter 2. Just as the Spirit came upon the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 as a dove, He came in Acts chapter 2 as the wind and as fire. And who did He come upon? Notice the phrase, all mankind. This is not a promise just to the Jews. The Spirit of God is not going to be limited by any borders. This is a universal gift. As it says in verse 21, it is for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And what would be the evidence of His coming? Let's read on. He says, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. What's the evidence? They would prophesy. Now, it doesn't just simply mean prophesying in the narrow sense of foretelling the future, the word prophesy means to foretell. And so he's also talking about those who would foretell or tell forth 
the truth of God. That's the prominent evidence of the Spirit. Back in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 11, Moses selected 70 elders of Israel. And we're told there that God came down in the cloud and He took the Spirit off of Moses and distributed the Spirit on those 70 elders. You know what they did? They prophesied. That's the evidence of the Spirit. When the Spirit came, we're told in Acts 1.8, we would receive power to do what? To witness. To proclaim. But you know what's interesting in that passage, if you read it, while they're prophesying, we're also told that the Spirit came on two other individuals in the camp. Their names were Eldad and Medad. And they began to prophesy. And so Joshua came to Moses and said, there's two guys over here prophesying. Make them stop because they're not part of the 70. And Moses made a great statement. Moses said, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them all. Moses' desire found fruition in Acts chapter 2 because here comes the Spirit of God and He came upon them all. And as the Spirit comes, we're given evidence here that He's going to break all the stereotypes. Because He wasn't going to be limited by race. wasn't coming to Jews only. He was going to be poured out on all mankind. He wasn't going to be limited by sex. He says, it'll happen to your sons and your daughters. They shall prophesy. It's not limited to the priests, not limited to the Levites, not limited to the men. It's going to happen on everyone. And then He says, He... He wasn't going to be limited by age. He says, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Visions are what happens in the daytime when you're awake. Dreams, what happen at night when you're asleep. And dreams and visions were the two primary ways that God revealed His truth in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 12 and verse 6 records the words of God. He says, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I the Lord shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. That was God's way of communicating his prophetic truth. But what he's telling us here is that that's not going to be limited to older people who we usually think of as being the wise. He says when the Spirit comes, He's going to reveal His truth to the old and the young. We'll find young men declaring truth because it's revealed by the Spirit of God. And then He wasn't limited by social status. If you notice verse 18, it says that bond slaves, the lowest social strata, were to be prophets as well. God is no respecter of persons. And so Joel's prophecy was that the Spirit would be poured forth upon Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, slave and free, and they would all prophesy. And that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit came. But Peter goes on and quotes Joel further, beginning in verse 19. It says, And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Now, did that happen on the day of Pentecost? No. Th those are signs associated with the second coming of Christ. 
In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So he jumps from the beginning of the church, when the Spirit first comes, to the very end when Christ is coming back. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. Number one, he wants to let us know how long the Spirit would be here. He wasn't going to come as he came in Moses' day for just one brief moment. He was going to come and he was going to stay until the day of the Lord. And I think secondly, he goes on and quotes the rest of what Joel says here because he wants to get to verse 21. Preachers are known to do that. They will read more because they want to get to something. And that's what I think he's doing here. He reads on to stuff that's still going to be fulfilled because he wants to get to verse 21 where he reads, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's the message when the Spirit comes? Everyone, Jew or Gentile, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter is going to develop that verse throughout the rest of his sermon in chapter 2, and as you well know, this sermon ends in verse 41 with 3,000 people being saved. And so Peter steps forward to clear up the confusion on the day of Pentecost. This is not a bunch of people filled with sweet wine. This is a bunch of people filled with the Spirit of God. This is what God promised 800 years earlier through His prophet Joel. The Spirit has come. Now what we read about here in Acts chapter 2 can also be referred to as spirit baptism or the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now we're not told that in Acts chapter 2, but we know it from other passages. For instance, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, Jesus said, For John baptized with water but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, here came the Spirit. So this is a baptism with the Holy Spirit. Later in Acts chapter 11 and verse 16, Peter is referring back to the day of Pentecost, and he says that's the day when we were baptized with the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what is the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 tells us. It says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. The baptism with the Holy Spirit, which is really a baptism that Jesus does because Jesus says He would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, by the Spirit, takes us and places us into that one body of Christ. That happened to this 120 collectively on the day of Pentecost, and it happens individually to believers today. You say, well, when does the baptism of the Holy Spirit take place? When is a person baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer to that question has caused about as much confusion as we see on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Some people teach that a person gets saved 
but they don't receive the Holy Spirit until a later point when they experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then the Spirit comes to dwell in them. And of course, they also say that the evidence of that is the speaking of t in tongues that we read about here in Acts chapter 2. And to come to, get to that conclusion, they basically take Acts chapter 2 and say, this is the way it happened there, therefore that's a pattern. We should experience the same thing today. Well, let's examine that. Were the 120 on the day of Pentecost believers? Yes, I believe they were. Remember when, remember when uh, Jesus sent the 70 out to preach? They came back and they were all excited because they could cast out demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus said to them, Luke 10, 20, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now, if their names were recorded in heaven, then they were saved. Jesus said to His disciples in John 15, 3, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. The disciples were saved. You say, well then why did they have to wait for the Holy Spirit? Well, because in God's plan, the Holy Spirit was going to come on the day of Pentecost. And prior to that day, they weren't going to receive the Holy Spirit. It didn't matter if they prayed for it, asked for it, sought it. They were not going to get the Holy Spirit until the day of Pentecost because that's when the church was born. There was no church prior to that to be baptized into. And so they had to wait. After the event in Acts chapter 2, there's no longer a reason to wait. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, after Peter's sermon... He says to them, after they ask the question, what shall we do? He says, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, there's no waiting at this point. He's speaking to unbelievers. You don't have to be a Christian. This is not a post-Christian event. He's speaking to unbelievers and he says, you can have the promise of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's no longer a reason to wait. Now, let me add a footnote here. Be careful about drawing patterns out of the book of Acts. The book of Acts lays out the history of the early church. It tells us about the first 30 or so years of the church. But from beginning to end, it's a book of transitions. In Acts, we go from the synagogue to the church. We go from Old Testament saints, which the disciples were in Acts chapter 1, to New Testament saints. We go from a body of Jewish believers, which we find in Acts chapter 2, to a body made up of Jews and Gentiles. There's transitions throughout the book of Acts. So be careful when you come to a passage in Acts and say, that's the pattern for everyone today because there are transitions there. In fact, Paul even got caught in transitions. In Acts chapter 18 and chapter 21, we find him keeping a Jewish vow. Shaved his head and went through purification rituals. Now, do we come to that passage and say, 
That's the pattern for us today. I think Dave read that passage. Uh, I would not be opposed to shaving heads if you want to get into that. I wouldn't have that much to lose. We see, we can't go to the book of Acts and say, there's a pattern, let's run with it. You see, when we come to the book of Acts, we have to be careful. Because the teachings in the book of Acts and the examples in the book of Acts are only applied to our day if they are confirmed in the epistles. You see, we read examples in the book of Acts. In order to take that and apply it to our day, we need to find confirmation of it in the letters that are written later on. And there's a problem with the teaching that says you're saved and then later you get the Holy Spirit. Because that teaching leads me to the conclusion that there can be Christians today who don't have the Holy Spirit. And when I come to the letters, I have a problem with that. In fact, with that in mind, look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Let's just read the last half of that verse. Romans 8, 9. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. Did you get that? If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. So there can be no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit. The only reason we see that happening in the book of Acts is because there is a transition between the old and the new. Now, other people teach today that you get saved and you get a little bit of the Spirit and then later you have the baptism with the Holy Spirit and you get all of the Holy Spirit and you get the power. And the verse that's usually pointed to is John chapter 20, verse 21 and 22, where Jesus turns to the disciples and says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, did they receive the Holy Spirit at that moment? Or was that a promise that Jesus was making that they would receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And I think when we look at other scriptures, we have to come to the conclusion that Jesus was making a promise to them. Because in John chapter 7, Jesus stood up and said, He who believes in me from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this commentary in verse 39. He said, But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Why was the Spirit not given? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, the Spirit couldn't come until Jesus left. John chapter 16 and verse 7, Jesus says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. 
Jesus didn't send the Spirit until he ascended into heaven. In fact, Peter tells us that same thing in this sermon in Acts chapter 2. In verse 33, he says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Jesus had to be exalted first. And once He was exalted, the Father gave Him the promise of the Spirit, and He poured out the Spirit upon us. If we had Christians today who had a little bit of the Spirit, and other Christians who had all of the Spirit, then we would have a body made up of the haves and the have-nots. And rather than the Spirit bringing unity, He would really be bringing division. In fact, what's interesting is that when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, which was one of the most carnal churches in the New Testament, you would think that he would write to the church at Corinth and say, what you guys need is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says to them in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. See, he writes to them and says, We all have already been baptized with the Spirit. It's already happened. See, that's the, there's no such thing as a non-Spirit baptized Christian. Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the way you get into the body to begin with. And it's the source of our unity. Sometimes you hear people say, well, what we need is another Pentecost. Pentecost was a unique situation. Acts chapter 2 describes the first Pentecost and the last Pentecost. And that's why God had the unusual signs, the wind and the fire and the, and the languages, to denote this as a special event, the birthday of the church. Just as there is one birth of Christ, one death of Christ, one resurrection of Christ, one ascension of Christ, there is only one coming of the Holy Spirit. Only happened one time. The church was only born once in Acts chapter 2. It's an historical event. You say, well, then how do you explain Acts chapter 8? Well, let's look over there. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. A Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now if you read Acts chapter 8, you'll find that Philip goes up into Samaria and starts preaching. This is phase two of Jesus' game plan in Acts 1.8. He said you're to begin in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria. So this is phase two. He goes there and he starts preaching and people believed and were baptized, but they didn't receive the Spirit of God. You say, why not? Well, I think it's important for us to understand that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. 
If Philip had gone up into Samaria and preached and they believed and got the Holy Spirit, you know what, ha what would have happened? They would have formed their own Christian group. We would have had the first denomination. First Church of Samaria and United Church of Jerusalem. And they never would have had any fellowship with each other. But instead, the Spirit did not come, and so the apostles in Jerusalem sent two apostles up there, Peter and John. They came up. The Spirit came as they laid hands on the people, and two things really happened. Number one, they witnessed what happened, so they went back to Jerusalem and said, the Samaritans are part of us. They got the same Spirit we did. And they also, the Samaritans also realized that the power and authority in the church was in the hands of the apostles. And so they learned, rather than being out on their own winging it, they were to be submissive to the apostles in Jerusalem. You say, well, what about Acts chapter 10? Well, turn over there. Acts chapter 10 describes what happened at the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. If there was a rift between the Jews and Samaritans, there was a chasm between the Jews and the Gentiles. When the Jew came out of a Gentile country, he would wipe the dust off his clothes and off his feet because he didn't want to bring uncleanness into Judea. No Jew would ever go into the house of a Gentile. But in Acts chapter 10, Peter gets a vision showing him that the Gentiles are not unclean and leading him to go to the house of Cornelius. And so he goes there and he preaches. And verse 44 says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message, and all the uncircumcised believers, all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. This is phase three of the game plan. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, now the uttermost parts of the earth. Now it's the Gentiles. In this case, there's no waiting. Why? Because Peter's there. And Peter witnesses this take place. And in verse 46, we're told that he witnessed it because he heard them speaking with tongues and exalting God. In fact, if you come over to chapter 11 you find that Peter goes back to Jerusalem and reports what happens in verse 15. He says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as He did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how He used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, If God therefore gave to them the same gift as He gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's kind of humorous, actually, because it, it's almost like Peter is apologizing. Goes back to the church of Jerusalem and says, I couldn't help it. I was preaching, and the Holy Spirit came, and, and God was doing something, and I would have stopped Him, but I can't stop God. Which tells us the attitude that they had. Peter comes back and says, sorry, the Gentiles are in the church. And so verse 18 says, And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. They've got it also. They've got the same thing we've got. And so they understood that the church was made up of Jew and Gentile. You say, well, what about Acts chapter 19? Alright, turn over there. 
Acts chapter 19 describes how Paul came to Ephesus and he found some disciples there. Verse 2, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he says, well, into what were you baptized? And they say, into John's baptism. So we've got some disciples. We're told a little later in verse 7, there were about 12 of them. They were disciples of John the Baptist. Somehow they had fallen through the cracks. Somehow they never got to Jesus. And so they're kind of left out here in limbo. They're still following John. They've never come to Christ. And so he finds them. They are unbelievers. They have made the first step John's baptism, they've never come to Christ. And so Christ respond, or Paul responds to them in verse 4 and says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they had heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. He didn't come to them and say, let me explain to you how to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What he says to them is, you've missed out on Jesus. And he talks to them about Jesus. They were baptized in the name of Jesus, and the Spirit of God came to these unbelievers as they believed. And so what you see in the book of Acts is a historical transition of the church. The Holy Spirit came upon the Jews in Acts chapter 2, he came upon the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. He came upon the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And He came upon this leftover remnant of John's disciples in Acts chapter 19. And my point this morning is, you cannot take one of those passages and say, that is the standard for everyone today. Because these are the various phases in the expansion of the church from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now before I leave this subject of confusion or controversy, let me add one more thing. Acts chapter 2 describes the baptism with the Holy Spirit. We've confirmed that from other passages. But what Acts chapter 2 also mentions in verse 4 is that the 120 were filled with the Holy Spirit. And some people make no distinction between the baptism with the Holy Spirit and the filling with the Holy Spirit. That's a major mistake because there's a big distinction between the two. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever commanded to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We are commanded in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens to a believer once. At the point of salvation, the Spirit comes within us and He places us in the body of Christ. The filling of the Holy Spirit should happen over and over in the life of a Christian. In fact, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, we find that Peter was filled with the Spirit. In Acts 4.8, he was filled again. Acts 4.31, he was filled again. Stephen was filled in Acts 6.5, again in Acts 7.55. Paul was filled with the Spirit in Acts 9.17. He was filled again in Acts 13.9. See, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is a one-time event. The filling of the Spirit is an ongoing event. The baptism with the Holy Spirit grants the power. The filling, or the 
filling with the Spirit unleashes the power. And so, as I said last week, if you're a Christian, you don't need to get the Spirit. You've got the Spirit. And you don't need more of the Spirit. You've got all of the Spirit. What you need to do is give the Spirit all of you. You need to let Him fill up every area of your life. That's what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the way the Holy Spirit gets control of us and uses us as He would. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this passage that reminds us of the birth of the church. And Father, as we look at these examples from the book of Acts, I pray that You would give us clarity in understanding them. Father, we thank You for the presence of Your Spirit in our lives. And Father, rather than us going off searching for more of Your Spirit, we just pray, Father, that today we might give You all of us to let You do what You would want to do in our lives. That You might make us to be the people You want us to be. That we might truly open our mouths, as Peter did, to speak up and proclaim Your truth before a lost world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.